Welcome to this episode of the House of Wisdom podcast, where we interview academic influencers about their research and how it can shape the world. I'm Carl Lewis. I'm an academic. I'm Anik Ahmed. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Where's Deepak? What have you done with him? Anik, I thought we were quite clear in our last conversation. You'd had enough of Deepak, too much international law. He talks too much. Isn't that specifically what you said? I'm not going to dispute any of that, <laughs> but I still thought Deepak would show up. No, uh, Deepak's very busy uh, at the moment. I think he's actually at the House of Wisdom uh, discussing with all previous guests and uh, the invitees. So he's asked me to come along um, and just fill in, fill in a little bit. Uh, I apologize to the listeners. Of course, the charisma of Deepak will be missing for a little bit. Uh, but it is what it is. Yeah. So nice to meet you, Anik. Likewise, and I'm sure I'll, I'll fill in the charisma gap <laughs> with my dead tone voice. <laughs> no, definitely. So yeah, um, so what do I have to do? Uh, Deepak didn't actually uh, tell me what this whole role is about. I assume well, I just help you introduce guests. Do we have a guest today? We do have a special guest today. And I think everyone's going to enjoy the conversation we have with him. Mm. But I think what I'm, you did say Deepak has now reached the house of wisdom and it sounds like he's reached a new level of enlightenment even, you know, he's <laughs> yes. up there with the top academics I feel now. Yeah. And so I'm quite looking forward to seeing what he's learned from being in the house of wisdom. That's a good point. Maybe that's why he left. Maybe we're too lowly for him. Um, I guess that brings me to a question, having heard you mm-hmm. before, right? Since... I feel we always get to uh, hear about these guests, but Anik, I want to know about you. Mm-hmm. So we know roughly you, what your house of wisdom looks like. Who's coming along though? So I think I explore this on, on one episode where my house of wisdom is my head. Just All I can see is a room, a lot of bookshelves, and there's a massive window peering into space. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how this house works but it just somehow exists in my mind. Too right. And I think the perfect guest I would love to share that uh, space with is probably Brian Cox. He's mm-hmm. a UK kind of physicist, astrophysicist, and he uh, spent a lot of time explaining to laymen like me through, through BBC programs, yeah, all the wonders of the universe. And so I'm sure we would have some really incredible conversations, probably more me asking him stupid questions than me listening <laughs> at all. Um, just nodding and nodding definitely <laughs> but one thing that he he's done really well and, and the impact he's had on my life I suppose is just making me wonder more mm. make me think more about some of these exceptional events we see around even our uh, our planet let alone the rest of the universe and he actually got me um, very into um, exploring astronomy and astrophysics to the extent that I started taking night classes in um, the Royal Observatory in Greenwich a few years ago and it was in astronomy what? and physics, and it was about an eight-week course. And um, it all started because of his, his approach to science. You know, it just makes you enthusiastic about these things that you probably take for granted or you don't even spend time thinking about because you're so stuck into your, your rut or your day job or whatever. Wow. So, I, I would love to spend time with him and, and listen to him rather probably than have a conversation with him. What a great answer. And I mean, of course, it makes sense for the library. But of course, but, but, right. But let's stop for a minute. Take a little rewind situation. You took night classes? <laughs> yeah. In, this, wait, in astronomy, you said? 
Astronomy and astrophysics. And okay, so at what point do you go, look, my day's not busy enough? <laughs> I think I was in a really nice point in my life where I moved from a really uh, long hour job to a job that was normal. Okay. <laughs> I realized all those hours I spent working, I should actually probably spend doing something that I want to do now. And I, during that period in my life, I went to film school. I went, I did the astronomy and astrophysics uh, course. And between those two, I kind of was just like doing a lot of, or trying to follow up at home on my iMac and try to do editing and try to read more about space and stuff. And so it was, uh, is, that, is that a renaissance period in my life? <laughs> like enlightenment? Yeah, yeah, this is brilliant. So, yeah. I mean, half of me is like, well, of course, an astronomy class was at night time. This makes complete sense. <laughs> at the same time, I'm thinking, wow, oh, this is amazing. I mean, I feel like I've underachieved completely. I need to do some <laughs> night courses immediately. <laughs> all right. So, all right, Brian Cox, and thank you for explaining who he is, for anyone who does yeah. know this. I think it's a really good, really good idea, especially in the, in the library house of wisdom that you're setting up. Um, question, though, I think if there's a room where Brian Cox would have to learn from you. Mm. Yeah. So let's build this house of wisdom. Yeah. What's another room you'd include where you're like, okay, this is where I get to speak. And Brian Cox has mm. to now nod along to what I'm telling him. It's a really, really good question. I think Brian Cox wouldn't be too interested in banking. <laughs> Finance. How do you know? Maybe you so would. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to discount that. <laughs> what I think I would love to explore with Brian Cox is probably about Marvel, DC okay. Comics. And I will have an endless trove of things to talk about. And I'm sure he's going to learn a lot. And I'm, hopefully we can just chill and watch some Marvel movies together. <laughs> so. Okay. So I don't know whether I've missed this, but have you already revealed whether in the world of Marvel VDC, which one you align with on this podcast? I've never tried to enter that debate because <laughs> I feel like we shouldn't be pitting <laughs> together. It's, you enjoy them both. You Good know, idea. You have, you have aspirations for both and I can see why people, you know, get annoyed when they see maybe Marvel's done a more cohesive job of you know, showcasing their characters in, in movies versus DC. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just because we love these characters so much. We just have aspiration. We know they can do better, right? So uh -huh. that's why we get annoyed. But I don't see the point of pitting them. You know, I, I want to watch both of them. I, I want to see them both succeed. And it's only good for me because I love the comics. So. I have to say, that's an extremely academic approach. You just essentially yeah. completely avoided the question. Like, yeah, here's how I'm going to answer your question. Uh, no, not answering your question. Well done. <laughs> good work. It's hard. <laughs> it's like hard. It is hard. Feel like people are asking questions especially on i'm going to go on the side thing about twitter oh yeah forget that no, yeah know how to uh kind of create provocation with the way <laughs> questions are asked right like i'll see yeah. this twitter thing that says like man of steel was the best film ever tell me otherwise <laughs> yeah, exactly. and obviously like tons of people on twitter are like no 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 it's not the best film yeah you fall for it immediately <laughs> yeah, your emotional response is so overwhelming you just you stop thinking rationally that this guy's trying to or girl is trying to provoke you they want to get twitter activity indeed indeed um, yeah all right cool so you get to get Brancox to involve uh well, to get involved in some conversation about Marvel and DC. Is this an opportunity to introduce a segue to our superhero? I think so. I think we've got an awesome guest on today's episode. And I don't think we need to even explain it. Let's just get straight into it. Brilliant. 
In this episode of the House of Wisdom podcast, we are joined by no other than Dr. Deepak Mauer. I'm confused. <laughs> What's going on? So, Deepak's primary interests are in the field of public international law, with a special focus on legal theory and political philosophy. He also has a special interest in the history of public international law. His PhD thesis analyzes peace and justice development in international law and the manner in which primary international institutions, such as the League of Nations, United Nations, or the International Court of Justice, have dealt with such concepts in a domain heavily influenced by the power of the state. In March of this year, he released a seminal work, States Undermining International Law, the League of Nations, United Nations, and Failed Utopianism. Deepak is a visiting lecturer at King's College London, Dixon Boone School of Law and the University of Kent. He has also worked in the Special Tribunal for Lebanon. He holds a Master's in Public International Law from Leiden University and a Bachelor's in Law from the University of Kent. He is also co-host of the House of Wisdom podcast, if you didn't already know that. Welcome Deepak, how are you doing? I'm good, Anik. I don't know where this is going to go. It's really weird being in the, on the other side of the table and being interviewed this time. But I'm looking forward to it. I'm excited about the questions you got for me. I'm livid, actually, because I've only just got the job as a host. So the fact that I'm fired immediately. <laughs> Let's see. My, probationary. We, 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 might, we might have a little discussion. No, nah, no. Nah. <laughs> insult is given. I'm out. <laughs> Let's see. Anik and I will have like a little committee meeting later on. We'll see how well you do. We have a committee meeting. We're already working on succession plans. We're so successful right now with the podcast. We just don't have time for anything else, so we need maybe a replacement. There we go. There we go. Yeah. Um, right. I mean, I guess I have to ask uh, the famous question, though. Um, so, Deepak, you guys always start the interview by asking your guests a few questions. And the first one is Who would you want to stay with you in the house of wisdom if you were stuck there for a while? So I think throughout the season, I had my mindset. I was like, I know who I'd say. I'll, I'll always say this. And then just as soon as I knew that I'm going to get interviewed, I was like, hold on. I'm not sure if I want to choose this person. So initially, I thought Guy Garvey from Elbow, really cool band. Uh, he's an amazing lyricist, got some really, really cool ideas with his songs. I thought he'd be a great guy to hang out with. But I thought, no, I need to step it up a little bit and go with someone else. So I actually chose Neil Gaiman, who's my favorite author who's written books such as American Gods, Neverwhere, Ocean at the End of the Lane, Coraline, and Anik, you might know uh, the graphic novel Sandman, which is the big thing. So uh, yeah, he's, he's just someone that, uh, one of the reasons I really like him is when I read his work, I always feel, I always feel like he's the master of time. Like when you read his work, it almost slows down and you're just going at his pace. And if you've ever, ever heard him narrate his books, he does speak at a really slow pace and it's, and it gives you that space and time to kind of explore the worlds that he's created. So I always think he'd be such an amazing person to just hang out with in the House of Wisdom here. He'd maybe narrate a few of his books, uh, talk about some of his stories, some of his anecdotes. Another favourite book of mine is Good Omens that he wrote with um, Terry Pratchett. So, so a really awesome individual and a really cool character that I'm sure I'd get along with pretty well in the House of Wisdom. Excellent choice. And I, and I would add Norse mythology, which is one of my favourite books. Yeah, I forgot that because one. it's linked to Marvel. Yeah, or I Marvel probably inspired by Norse mythology. So you know the other way Yeah, I, I forgot that one. I was, I was remembering it's like going off the list. Which ones are there? And I forgot Norse mythology because we've talked about Norse mythology. We talked about it. Um, 
I, uh, with that book also, it's such an exciting way of just retelling mm. stories that we've known or that we're familiar mm. with. And again, he's just got such an amazing writing style. It just kind of lures you in. You just want to keep reading page after page yeah. because especially fantasy writers sometimes can't, well, aren't the best where you get, you mm. know, these standard stories. So he does have a bit of fun with them. He's a bit more innovative with them. So it's always interesting to, to read some of his books and he just seems like a really cool cat that I'd want to hang out with. I mean, I feel so ignorant right now. I've not read <laughs> one. <laughs> but good ones have seen. Good really is great. And good that was good fun. So that was a great sales pitch for sure. I'm going to have mm. to read this guy now. Yeah, for sure. Definitely recommend it. Okay. Now, I wonder if Sandman's ever going to be made into a movie. Oh, you don't know. It's, it's going to be a Netflix show it's coming out. Like, oh. Definitely worth checking out. I think, no, not James McAvoy. He's doing the audiobook. Mm. But there is a Netflix show coming out and Neil Gaiman's actually the executive producer so it should be pretty exciting. So definitely check that out. Uh, It will be really cool. Sandman is a really amazing graphic novel. Kind of in that line of thinking like fantasy, ideas of dreams, heaven, hell. It's it's really cool. So definitely check that out when it comes out, Carl. Okay, okay. There you go. See, if it comes out in video format where I can just (laughs) digest that information quickly, (laughs) much better. The thing with us (laughs) academics is that I think reading is our is our like full time job, right? Yeah, it, at least it's hard to be like, oh, I want to read a book just out of fun. Sometimes it gets a bit tough. So yeah, re- watch the Sandman instead of reading it. Yeah, I mean, my my part is like the opposite. She she could just continuously read and read and read. I'm just looking at yeah. like, wow, you're just so much better <laughs> at life right now. Yeah. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm I'm with you. Like, if I can, I want to stop reading. So okay, so you're going into House of Wisdom with a, uh, let's say, fancy novelist. Mm-hmm. have to ask. It's, oh, sorry, I mean, I, need, I don't know if it's too much. Fantasy novel, Deepak, go. Pitch oh. it. Oh, what? Pitch a fantasy novel? Yeah, yeah, go. Oh, you put me on the spot there. Um, <laughs> oh, that's, that's, a, that's a good one. Oh. Well, I'm going to obviously ask Neil Gaiman for some help. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> obviously. He's going <laughs> to, I'll give him like a, a standard kind of idea nice fantastical world and be like you do what you can with it um and work it because uh i think that's the best situation or best um, answer i can give you right now because yeah, you know i feel it. like if you want to write a fantasy book or create a fantasy world you'd want to take your time and develop mm. it and and actually hold on no i would actually like to have a fantasy um story that does incorporate a lot of different uh fantasies from different parts of the world so i don't know mythologies from africa or mythologies from like you know, south america before you know colonialism took place that'd be quite an exciting fantasy world to explore so you know a world where colonialism didn't happen and all these worlds got to grow and develop with their oh. magic mythologies in them so i think that would be the idea and i'll get neil gaiman to kind of really just you know sharpen it up and make it really exciting and really cool yeah just some brief comments neil if you can yeah if you find some time yeah, some yeah. of your average comments would be really appreciated <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> multi-award winning novelist just just come here uh, work on this instead please <laughs> that's a really great answer i thought you were going to say like so you'd get all mythological characters from different cultures and have them come in is that what you mean to a certain degree yeah just, i don't know because oftentimes when we read fantasy books it's very much kind of western world medieval world and things like that well why don't we get to explore different parts of the world they've got you know, their own folklores, they've got their own mythological stories of the past. Why don't we explore them in a, in a, in a fantasy world? I don't doesn't happen that often, so I'd like to see that, and Neil Gaiman have a go at that, actually. Yeah. Great answer. Yeah. Great answer. 
So do, do we have to leave fantasy now, Nick? Do we have to go all serious? I, I wanted to quickly explore my fantasy. Yes! <laughs> okay, go Just quickly. It. Yeah. Go. Zombie apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. Okay. And the only way to stop this is the House of Wisdom podcast has to do its first 24-hour recording. Oh, my days. Which is then transmitted globally, because it takes 24 hours for every, the whole world to get this transmission somehow. That's just the mechanics of this fantasy. Okay. And you, we've got to think of something to go for 24 hours. Okay. Oh, wow. And I'm not sure if we saved the world or not. So I was about to say this, this. There are some narrative <laughs> gaps in this uh, in this idea. That, uh, uh, first of all, Deepak, it's not yeah. your fantasy. Alex, what's going on? <laughs> all right, Neil, Neil Gaiman. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Give him one right. opportunity. Right. Look who he thinks right. he is. Sorry, I've been way too quick on that. Sorry. <laughs> the, 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 Neil operates <laughs> with a book called Sandman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh, but okay. it's true though. Okay, I like I like it. I don't like zombies. That's my only thing. Okay. I'm not a fan of zombies, but other than that, it sounds cool. Okay, it's a good good concept, but we've got to solve some fundamental issues with it. <laughs> it's actually quite impressive how many different stories continue to come out with zombies in them. Yeah, yeah. Why are we so obsessed with zombies? I don't know. I, I, they they creep me out. Zombies really creep me out. I don't know what it is about them, but I don't like them. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but I don't know. Maybe the, the undying dead. Yeah, first eating part. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Fair enough. There's there's a few reasons why I don't like. <laughs> yeah. No. No. That, that that's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Zombie apocalypse. House of Wisdom saves it. Wow. Pitch it straight to Hollywood. Yeah. I feel like that is a. Was <laughs> was was the was the visual was the visuals just you two sitting down. 24 hours. Just two, 24 hours, zombies <laughs> surrounding the house. Just like, we get the tea. We get an academic because, like, oh, I'm about to be attacked. Let me just quickly in there for five yeah. minutes. Yeah. Do it. <laughs> like, fine. Five minutes. the time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The way I would pitch it is like yeah. Bill and Ted meets okay. Dawn of the Dead. Okay. Ah, okay. And I feel like, you know, great adventure, trying to save the world, Sean the dead, zombie apocalypse, chilling in a pub, waiting for it all to blow over. We kind of like that, but with a podcast. Okay. I like it. You know. Sean of dead, best zombie movie of all time. I do like 28 Days Later. 28 Days Later. That was too scary. I'm not doing it that. Is, it's quite yeah, scary. I like Sean of the Dead, I think. Yeah. I mean, that one stands out. I, I will rewatch that one. I'll probably exactly. rewatch Army of the Dead I watched recently on Netflix. And yeah. that was a fun movie, but I wouldn't say it's rewatchable. I felt like it was a bit of a downer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What is in the zombie movie? Downer, man. Like, there's so yeah. many deaths. I went to see The Conjuring on okay. um, Sunday, and I haven't seen a horror film in like ages. And firstly, that stuff's just not good for your heart or anything. I just I love actually, horror movies. I, I left. Movies. I left the yeah. cinema at a heightened level of tenseness. <laughs> I was like, this just can't be good for people, right? I, I swear, I swear, someone died. Like in America, I was watching a horror, you know, they wonder what really? horror films and someone no. had a heart attack in the cinema. Never heard no. that. It happens, but... quite, happens quite regularly. But I did, oh, trying to get to sleep. That was, yeah, that was, that, great was that good? It was that good where I just woke up at the same time as those people wake up in the movie. <sighs> you know, something's <laughs> going to come over the curtains. <laughs> Wait a minute, I'm more impressed by this idea that you went to see a movie. What do you mean you physically went oh, to yeah. the cinema? So, um, cinemas are open as long as you uh, wear masks, but then take them off when you're eating food. So everyone's <laughs> continuously eating. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow, yeah. nice. 
Quickly. Obesity crisis. <laughs> <laughs> Why is everyone so big? Well, listen, uh, it's the only way we could not wear masks. <laughs> wear masks. If you're drinking or eating, you don't need to wear a mask. But how was that? Was that the first time you went to a cinema after the uh, No, I, I went in between lockdowns, I think, last year to see Tenant, that Christian oh, Nolan wow. film. I still don't understand it. Uh, yeah, I left I've not seen it yet. I okay, wasn't... Um, don't spoil it. I feel like the concept... Oh, okay, I won't spoil it then, do you? Yeah. Yeah, don't spoil it. I'll talk with Carl separately. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll, we'll do a, yeah, another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Fantasy um, news we want to see. Yeah. But to get serious, yeah. yeah, we have a second question for you, Deepak. We always have two questions. Okay, okay. all right. Don't, okay. don't want to diverge from that. What does utopia mean to you, Deepak? That is a, is a tough question to answer. Yeah. Look, not only in terms of... You know, we've obviously just talked about sci-fi fantasy for a really long time, but yeah. it's something that... I research, even actually Carl does look at himself. So it's a difficult one. On a, I think in, in spirits, this idea of, of a perfect world and achieving that perfect world, trying to, you know, Robert Nozick, I think is uh, a famous uh, political philosopher. He says, although he's been critical, he said, utopianism is the idea of achieving all social and political goods. And I think that's actually probably the most accurate depiction of what utopianism is. And for me, that's kind of the idea of what utopianism is achieving all social and political goods. We might not reach them, but the attempt is there. And that's kind of what I see a utopianism as, or utopia as, this kind of guiding principle that makes us be better, you know, strive for better to improve society. We might not get there, but you know, we've got the hope there, we've got the drive there. So for me, utopia is a really important idea, or really inspiring idea of actually moving towards um, a better world. Good answer, extremely good. I mean, obviously very articulate and layered. Um, I think the, the immediate question that comes to mind, right, is, well, I guess not the immediate question, but so many people would feel unsatisfied, wouldn't mm. they? Mm -hmm. Why didn't you just, could you explain a bit why you didn't just give an answer of like, hey, well, utopia is, you know, like, um, imagine uh, peace for all, unlimited wealth and food in a perfectly clean environment. Why is it ne not necessarily the best answer to go away and immediately provide content to this idea of utopia. So uh, for, for me personally, I think that defeats the purpose of what utopianism is about or that idea or that, or if we're kind of moving on to it, kind of the political idea of, of utopianism. Once we start suggesting what a utopian world really looks like, then we're going to start having diverging interests. We're not going to be able to then reach this kind of perfect world. Can we agree that this vision of utopianism is the one? It's going to be quite difficult. And I think that's where I suppose you have to be a bit... Um, Unutopianistic in the in the negative sense, and so not being so naive, and realize, well, actually, you can't re um, realize or uh, achieve utopianism. The best that we can get out of something like utopianism is actually to inspire us to just develop a better society around us. So, so on that basis, that's why I'm always quite tentative to say, okay, this is the vision of what utopianism should look like. This is what utopian world would 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 be. But because you know, for me, it might be different. For Anik, it might be different. For you, Carl, it might be different. So, I always kind of stay clear of actually saying what a utopian world looks like. I think I'm more interested in what utopianism does in terms of being inspiring for developing society. Yeah, I mean, we just got real serious real quick. You see how we did that? Fantasy, zombies, bam, what's utopian? <laughs> yeah, and, and, then, and then straight into it, yeah, straight into it. Straight into quite a deep philosophical uh, idea there. Very right. good. So let me kick off uh, what we're going to talk about today. We already touched upon it a little bit, but I'll try to summarize it. 
So Utopia is a wonderful place where everyone coexists and local and global issues are resolved peacefully without compromise. We live in a world far away from this ideal. In states undermining international law, Deepak provides valuable insights into the concept of utopia, informed by political, legal and political bases. In this book, Deepak makes us believe there is a better world out there. Importantly, he proves there are ways the legal system can be structured in order to realise social and political goods and prevent suffering and injustice. Deepak, would you mind summarising the central themes of your book in a few words for us? Sure. Uh, so I was, I've always been quite interested in this idea of this kind of battle between idealism and realism. So that's quite a prevalent feature or, or uh, an important idea within international relations. So the idea of realist, the realist thinking of, of, of IR being states will go out and seek their own interests when they're engaging with other states. And then this idealist concepts, you know, trying to improve the international community, the society of states. And that's always been such an interesting idea for me. And I want to kind of explore that from a international law perspective, so from a legal perspective. So what has been the influence of idealism on the international legal system and what's been the influence of realism on, on international law so first of all looking at idealism so i talk about it in the sense of utopianism and if we look at the 20th century and how international law has developed during this period especially after large-scale crisis so such as world war one world war two where we had this huge you know explosion or an, acceler an accelerated development of international law that took place we can actually see idealism or utopianism be actually a really important facet or an important um, influence in the development of international law and the development of the legal system. So when we look at how the League of Nations was developed and moving from kind of a, a previous era where international law was very much unregulated, really flexible, states were kind of conducting international how they saw, saw fit, to then moving to the League of Nations where we had kind of a centralised institution we can definitely see some of the influences of utopianism being there. So really arguing for change, really seeing development take place. So we have a better structure, a better system to ensure that we maintain international peace and security. So there we can see kind of the influence of idealism, utopianism and try to explore that in the book. And then on the flip side, I did want to look at how realism affects international law. Is it a obstacle to achieving um, international peace and security? there's always an obstacle to uh, achieving international peace and security. So by doing that, I wanted to explore the primary position states and join the international legal system. So states, you know, for those that are not that well attuned or, or um, um, aware of international law, states are the primary subjects and, and objects. So states design what the international legal rules are. So through custom international law, through treaties. So they're very much the, the primary actors. So that gives them a very important role, a very important position in the international legal system. And at times, when we look through the history of international law, this, is this has been a barrier. So when we look at how the League of Nations crumbled um, because of the um, selfishness of certain states, for example, Germany, um, even UK and France being quite um, protectionist in their approach. And then also looking at the United Nations right now, the Security Council, how it's struggling to deal with some of the biggest international um, crises that have we've experienced in the 21st century, we can definitely see how realism, this idea of states acting out on their own incentives, on their own um, um, interests, has been a real barrier to um, achieving some of these kind of utopian goals and these important ideals of the international legal system, primarily maintaining international peace and security. So in this book, I just really want to explore, first of all, how much of an influence utopianism has been on the development of international law, and then look at actually, at times, 
states have been the biggest barrier to achieving these Ethiopian goals on a consistent basis? So I have, first of all, I think it's really great that you already introduced, let's say, someone who wouldn't be familiar with international law, with international, to what international law is about, right? And the idea of states and the place they hold. Um, but of course, we're already deep diving into vocabulary that perhaps a lot of people may be confused about. And your book, uh, which I very much enjoyed reading, by the way, Deepak, um, and that's why you're the superhero of the day. Um, you'll find out that is later. Stay, <laughs> that's why uh, when, I, when I read your book, I was thinking, okay, how do we simplify this? And I want to maybe ask you to explain a little bit more what you mean in the title immediately, right? So you've explained to us uh, what states are, the role of international law, but you say that states are undermining international law, right? Which gives us this idea or the suggestion that international law in some way has a certain path, right? And that states are somehow steering international law off its path. Um, what is this path, according to you and uh, your theory? Um, was it agreed upon somewhere at some time by someone who are these actors? And how are we to understand the 20th century, which you focus on specifically, as being crucial for our understanding of this path? Yeah, I think that's a really important question that you've asked me, Carl, because it's quite an audacious um, title to say states are undermining international law. I mean, what does that, as an international lawyer, they'd be like, hold on, you know, is that actually true? On, a, on an everyday basis, international law is working really fine. States are, you know, complying with it. They're maintaining the international legal system. Perhaps this book is not focusing on the everyday of international law and it's focusing on those big crises where international law really matters. So how can we prevent a large scale crisis from taking place? How can we ensure that, you know, something like Syria does not continue and we can actually find some sort of peaceful resolution? So before I suppose we get to that point, it's very important that we go through the development international law has undergone. So we look at Westphalia, peace of Westphalia and the idea of kind of modern international law being developed. And the idea there was very much about states maintaining their relations and using legal structures, legal system, a legal system, an international legal system to maintain those relations. Um, we can move then to the 19th century, where perhaps there was a slight tinkering with this, where international law was there to maintain relations still, but then for these hegemonic European powers to, you know, continue on their kind of imperialist ambitions. So continue kind of colonialism, expanding their, um, their territory, expanding their empire. But this really changed in the 20th century. So it became less, less so, I mean, still very important and very important component of international law. But the idea of maintaining international peace and security became a, a more interesting ideal, a more important ideal of international law. So it wasn't just about, you know, states maintaining their good relations amongst one another so they can continue their, um, you know, embarking on their self-interest. It actually became an idea of, well, we are a community, we're an international community that are on a day-to-day -day basis, especially in a contemporary world, um, engaging regularly. So how do we maintain a, a status quo, some sort of balance, some sort of stabilities that we don't end up having a large-scale crisis such as World War One, World War Two, that upsets the cart and we have economic problems, political instabilities, um, all sorts of trials and tribulations that could take place. So international law started to develop. So it wasn't just about this idea of maintaining states, uh, state relations. It became about how can we protect um, global problems, global issues. And in this, in this day and age, I think international law has really moved to that point where we're thinking about global problems. We're not thinking about state-focused issues. So climate crisis is a perfect example of that. So we're moving at 
using international law to deal with important issues that touch all of us, regardless of what state we're from or what hegemonic um, state we may be from. So international law has changed so much. And, and the 20th century is a great example of that. You know, with the development of the League of Nations, with the development of the United Nations, it really did put focus, this idea of maintaining international peace and security. And not just being about the hegemonic powers, Certainly, we can't be too naive and say that hegemonic powers don't dictate the international legal system. For sure, they still do. But the international legal system can't now just justify its existence based on the hegemonic powers. It does have to have that interest of maintaining peace and security in you know, the global south, for example. So I think international law has changed. And on that basis, when we talk about how um, states are undermining international law, well, we can see that. So, for example, again, coming back to Syria, I think there's a great example of, of how states are undermining international law using the, the Security Council um, model of maintaining international peace and security. A lot of states are just using it for their own self-interest. They're not actually maintaining international peace and security. They're not really following through with the ideals and the projected um, concepts are, that were so important within the United Nations Charter. They're just maintaining their political interests. So I think in that sense, we can certainly say that states are undermining international law. When it comes to those really serious issues where we need international law to intervene and deal with these big issues that are you know, so prevalent throughout you know, 20th, 21st century, it seems like international law is failing. It's not man maintaining or managing to overcome these big catastrophes because states continue to be selfish and continue to uh, prioritise their own uh, domestic interest over the international interest. Just a quick follow-up on that. I mean, I know you don't talk about this in your book, but it'll be interesting to get your view on like, what message do you think it sends when country or state like United Kingdom you know, decides to potentially renege on international agreements or agreements with its European counterparts in respect to Brexit, for example. What, is that the perfect illustration of a state undermining international law in your eyes? I, supp I suppose, yeah. I mean, to a certain degree, yes, in terms of that's a perfect encapsulation of states prioritising their primary duty over their domestic, mm. over, their, over their international duty. So, so I talked about this kind of dual duties of the state. So we've got the primary one, that's the one that the state has to its domestic um, order so you know those that have voted it in and then it's international uh, duty that it has to you know the security council the united nations various international agreements that it's signed up to and if you look at how the state is designed it is pretty much designed to prioritize its domestic duty over its international duty um, and you can't and you can't criticize it for doing that either i mean it's been set up like that we look at kind of the the concept of the state this is a really old idea really old concept and this international duty is a really new one. It's, you know, let's say 100 years. You know, let's be, um, it's be a bit, you know, um, safe and say 100 years there. And we're almost expecting states to then flip that whole idea of maintaining or, or protecting its domestic group and actually incorporating this international duty into it. And I think we're expecting too much from the state. And I think, you know, Brexit's perhaps a perfect example of that, where the UK is, um, you know, being a bit renegade about its uh, commitments to the uh, withdrawal agreement. I think that happens consistently throughout time, consistently throughout the history of international law, where states will prioritise their, um, their domestic duty over their international duty. There's certainly examples of that during the League of Nations period, where, for example, we look at the Abyssinian crisis between Italy and Ethiopia, or well, then it was Abyssinia. UK and France were kind of the leading members of the Council of the League of Nations. And the, the League of Nations were actually getting quite close to 
finding some sort of resolution that would ensure that Abyssinia wouldn't lose any territory, wouldn't lose any um, um, any um, sort of sovereignty. However, UK and France, worrying about potential big catastrophe that might happen in the future, decided to secretly um, negotiate a deal with, with Italy that completely scuppered all the, the good work that the League of Nations had done. And I think that shows, again, a perfect example of you know, the systems that were set in place to maintain international peace and security were there. If, you know, states fully committed to it, fully run through with it, there might have been a peaceful resolution where Abyssinia wouldn't have lost territory, wouldn't have ceded territory to Italy. However, states such as UK and France saw self-interest, saw some sort of protection strategy that could, they could play. And this really did jeopardise the work of the League of Nations. This actually also delegitimised the League of Nations in, in terms of being effective in dealing with international peace and security. So, so it happens throughout. You know, the UK is perhaps the most recent example of it, but throughout the history of international law, we see states um, prioritise that domestic duty over their um, international duty. I think one other thing that I kind of picked up as I was kind of running through your book and just, just on that you know, response you made about undermining international law, how... How critical is the accountability framework and then also probably slightly linked together about the economic power that's at the centre of that discussion? So in, in my mind, international law seems very wrongly phrased because it feels like, sounds like it's something divine and you are accountable if something goes wrong, which mm-hmm. is the case in the state. Yeah. On an international basis, it feels quite flimsy and depending on how powerful you are economically you could probably decide whether you want to comply with something or not comply with something and if you don't comply with something you're probably not going to be held accountable for it um how does how yeah have you thought about that as you've been preparing your so you've asked me a question that a lot of law students will will ask me okay we'll go throughout you know the the few first few weeks of um of an international law course and then i'll get to go hold on what's going on here this seems really flimsy this doesn't seem to make sure that, you know, states are accountable for violations of international law. And this goes back to the point of why it's kind of problematic that perhaps the state is the primary subject and object of the legal system. So I always give the example that international is kind of like a nursery where the kids are running the nursery and they're deciding the rules for themselves uh, as they go along. And I, and I think that that problem or that issue with international law leads to that issue of accountability. So, for example, look at the the persecution of the Uyghur um, group um, in China right now. Um, certainly we could argue that there's been violations of human rights um, and certain, a, a load of violations of international law. But what's the accountability for it? You know, where are we actually going to see China be hold, held responsible for certain violations like that? Uh, it seems quite difficult in, in terms of how international law is structured right now. The way international law is set up right now it is very difficult to hold in particular hegemonic powers responsible for violations of international law. And I, I feel like it comes back to the fact that states have such a powerful position in the legal system. So I'm going to follow up. Here's, here's what happens. So Anik and I probably have many questions for you. And now we're just going to follow up on our follow-ups. And that's yeah. how the rest of this is going to go. Um, <laughs> let me follow up a little bit on Anik's point and connect it to the question you asked mm-hmm. me to maybe build upon Deepak. Because this whole idea of accountability brings to mind uh, a community for me, right? So someone's held accountable within the community. We have rules within this community. And then your answer earlier about states undermining international law, when you started to describe obviously, well, what the legal League of Nations was aimed to help uh, resolve, uh, sorry, the aim of the League of Nations to help resolve was X, and then also the United Nations after that, 
is are you really concerned with states undermining international law or are you concerned with states undermining this project of an international community right because that's not the same thing because technically not technically but let's say that the critic could say well international law is doing exactly what it's meant to be doing right and there are very clever lawyers who can play about with the rules and you know and hegemonic powers will use this idea that there is no let's say supreme sovereign uh, above to then move about and decide well these rules apply to me here they don't apply to me there insert an argument for morality instead of law, for example, for humanitarian intervention, as you probably always teach your students more not. So is it really the international legal order that's been undermined, or is it the potentiality of an international community? So a bit like what you spoke about earlier, this kind of utopian goal that we're never going to reach. Mm -hmm. I would say it's a bit of both in terms of, I th and perhaps more so that, that project of, of an international community is perhaps being more jeopardized, but in, in that project being jeopardized, international law also gets jeopardized and also gets undermined. So, for example, we could look at kind of the Mancunian crisis, the way in which Japan conducted itself. It was absolutely, it wasn't denying that it was um, violating the covenant of the, of, the, of the League of Nations. And there were certain arguments being made. We set up a committee um, that looked at kind of the violations that are taking place, clear violations of the covenant. But uh, to a certain degree, I think it's more so focused on that idea of, of the project of, of the international community. Because like we say, on a day-to-day -day basis, international law does work. So perhaps there might be a bit of a violation of um, the covenant of the League of Nations, but then Japan will continue to maintain its relations with, for example, um, Belgium uh, in trade deals that it has negotiated. And that shows that international law is still working. And it comes back to the idea that I talked about previously that on a day-to-day -day basis, international law works fine, but when it comes to those serious issues where we need intervention to take place, that's where international law is undermined. That's where it's jeopardized. And this idea of this project of international law being working towards an international community, this idea of, of international peace and security, that's where we're seeing those issues really show how states are jeopardizing or undermining the legal system. Yeah, I think, I mean, again, a uh, very succinct answer. It, it kind of also made me think of, well, that answer made me think of a possible response also to the whole Brexit uh, conversation yeah. we are having with Anik earlier on, right? So it's not law itself that's, uh, that was the problem here. Perhaps it was indeed this idea of who we are together as a community and whether we want to stay as a community, mm -hmm. which makes me question then if states are undermining international law and the international community together as two, uh, let's say, joint things from your perspective. Yeah. What are you telling us as uh, believers, perhaps, in peace, security, human rights? Are you saying that states don't care about these things? Is this what your book is telling us? So before we get to that, I think it's interesting that you kind of made that point of kind of the system is there and set in place for it to work. And it's kind of the states um, that are perhaps the obstacle there. We look at the Security Council the the powers that it has to intervene or to deal with international peace security so that's something i actually analyzed quite a fair bit in the book and, and i actually came to the conclusion there's enough here for those um you know p5 members for the security council members to intervene effectively to actually use those powers to intervene in in situations where there's been a threat to international peace and security but it seems to be the case that the way in which states are interacting or engaging with um, the provisions provided with them or before them, that's actually the big issue. So uh, perhaps I am being a little bit negative here and a bit more pessimistic here in terms of, yeah, states perhaps sometimes won't care um, unless it has that, you know, that element of they've got an interest or they've got a vested interest in this. States will only 
be interested in dealing or or, or intervening in a, in a in a threat to peace security if they could see an incentive that comes out of it. And that has been the the case throughout history. Right? It's not just you know a, perhaps a pessimistic view of of how states behave. It's normal, and and again, it comes back to you know what is the responsibility of the state? It is to maintain its own populace, maintain its own group. So you can't you know criticize it for doing that. But it's set up for that. So that's why you know, it comes back to this idea of international law is fundamentally flawed when it does rely so much on the state for it to function so effectively. Mm-hmm. And we're going to constantly have situations where there's going to be a big crisis that takes place. But we've got certain hegemonic powers that don't see an interest of actually intervening. And that means that these crises will continue on. They'll get worse. Um, we're going to have you know worse repercussions take place. You know, if we could look at COVID, for example, in terms of the kind of global approach to uh, dealing with uh, this pandemic, it has been quite, um, you know, isolationist. States have very much pre- preoccupied their own state rather than looking at how the global collective approach would have been actually a far better way of, of tackling this pandemic. So it's it happens now, it happened, you know, yesteryears, and it will continue to happen in the future. So, yeah, we have to be quite wary of, of the state for sure. Do you think one way of solving that or improving that situation is to encourage more blocks? And you mentioned the point about incentives. And if someone told me if my next door neighbour gets into trouble and if I don't help, I'm penalised for it, I'm pretty sure I'll be helping that person or I'll be helping my neighbour. Yeah. And I wonder whether things like the European Union for it, I'm sure it has its own flaws in one way, but you know, on the topic that you're talking about, do you think that would be... I, I think so. I think it creates a level of dependency upon mm-hmm. other states. Um, it becomes, it marries states uh, far stronger um, with economic ties and, and maybe even more stronger political ties. And that idea of, of then, you know, m- my international duty is then combined with my domestic duty becomes a bit stronger. Or let's say in this, in this regard, regional duty becomes stronger. So when they're once aligned, perhaps it makes it easier for then states to engage in a way that's thinking more of the collective rather than the individual so and, and we've often talked about this actually unique that, that mm. blocks are a real way of, a great way of going forward um you know allows for cultural development to take place you know we, we've often talked about how international perhaps is a bit more skewed to western ideals well blocks might be a one way of actually overcoming this so regional blocks that might develop international in a specific way will allow international law to be a bit more uh, developed a bit more nuanced a bit more complex so for me personally i think actually the idea of a regional block is a really positive way forward. I often look at the kind of the project of the EU as a positive one, as a as a successful one. Yes, certainly in the last five or six years, there's been some existential crises that the EU has to has had had to deal with. But generally, I think you know creating closer ties on a regional level will perhaps bypass the state maybe prioritizing its domestic duty over its um, its regional international duty. Yeah, and I think having a block also allows smaller countries to challenge big hegemonic powers. Yeah. And so the EU probably individually wouldn't be able to strike yeah. competitive trade deals with big nations like the US or China or whoever, but as a group, mm-hmm. they can. Mm-hmm. And I think that's maybe one way where a state um, may, may, it may be difficult for bigger states to undermine or influence smaller states. Yeah. Also, I mean, this is a, a perhaps a little bit more controversial in terms of, like, you know, Hungary and, <laughs> and, and Poland uh, are big, big uh, dissident voices within the EU. Mm. Not saying that they're, you know, what they're saying is right, but it has forced the EU to rethink itself and to think 
how it can actually adapt and evolve because yeah. it is very much stuck in this very um, neoliberal approach and neoliberalism hasn't actually worked for everyone. So although we're, you know, there's some really problematic um, politics at play in, in a Pol- Poland and Hungary, these smaller states have had an opportunity to actually push some sort of change to take place to for a, a larger block to rethink itself and to maybe um, set itself up in a, in a new direction. So I think it does give that avenue for smaller states to actually have a conversation, to be actually more involved, to have more of an impact on the, the larger political conversation that might be taking place on a regional or an international level. I think that this brings me to, I think, push you a little bit on the possible screams that Deepak's going to become empire, uh, like you know, imperial leader of the world, mm-hmm. uh, leading us to you know utopia. Um, why? Why do I say this? Okay, so we have blocks and whatnot, but uh, some underlying idea behind this book, at least from what I understand, and of course, correct me if I if I've misunderstood this, is and you know you mentioned this idea, civilizational development, right? So mm-hmm. this is in the book and. I would just say, okay, nice as, a, as like a, an idea, but terrifying at okay. the same time as a term, right? Mm-hmm. So there may be those who think that this is a dangerous idea, uh, at least by its namesake. Could you expand a little on what role the civilizational development plays in your overall narrative? Now, you've already mentioned, hey, look, Hungary and Poland force, uh, force us to reevaluate who we are as a community, for example, the EU. Um, in general, the idea of being able to continuously reevaluate our beliefs, our values, our ideals, and then ultimately, of course, our laws, which concretize them, perhaps, some people would say, is something that you're on board for, right? So I'm not saying that you're in any way saying you're going to have a final code mm-hmm. for the world to follow. <laughs> yeah. But this idea of civilizational development, I, 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 I know you see issues that need to be explained here right mm-hmm. because who who's going to tell us what that means yeah so could you please expand a little bit on this and what this plays what role this uh, term and this concept plays in your overall theory and in the book okay so so civilizational development comes in line with a, a concept that i developed in the book called emancipatory idealism so when i was looking at concept like utopian concepts such as human rights human dignity um, human security I find it difficult to come up with a justification for as to why I should be protecting Carl, your human rights or Anik, your human rights. What's, what's the justification for it? So when I was uh, going through writings such as John Locke, it became quite clear that the explanation or justification for each and every individual's liberties, his freedoms were based on this kind of religious idea that every individual is sacred. Every individual has this kind of sacrosanct um, value to them. But we live in a world where we're becoming more secular. And how do we then justify why I should be protecting your human rights? Why should, what's the justification there? I don't, I don't think in the 21st century, this idea of kind of a, a spiritual idea or the spiritual argument makes as much resonance. So I try to explore the works of Hegel and the works of critical theorists to come up with a justification. And the justification I came up with was that each and every individual and also groups of individuals has a right to exist, has a right to continue to live on and and have their human rights and human security and human dignity protected because they have this potential to contribute to the development of civilization. They have the potential either on a societal or a technological level. Um, You give an individual, you give a group of individual the right, the kind of environment, be it, you know, stable political, economic or 
legal environment, individuals, groups of individuals will prosper. They will develop their ideas. They will develop ways to improve society to ensure that society continues to develop on a, a perhaps regional level or on a civilizational or on a global level. So it was really trying to find a justification as to why these utopian concepts do exist. Why do we protect groups of individuals from all around the world that might have different political agendas, difficult, different religious uh, positions, different positions generally? So it was that idea. So really focusing on this idea that we are working towards developing civilization, developing the international society towards a better place. I, I'm aware, Carl, though, that there are some in worrying connotations to this idea of civilizations that oftentimes we talk about international in the 19th century there was this big divide between the civilized and the non-civilized and this allowed for states the hegemonic european states to then go into various countries around the world or various territories around the world and, and invade them on this basis and i suppose not enough thought has been given on that idea of kind of earmarking civilization or development as a society moving away from that idea i think perhaps it is an isn't is an element of semantics there in, in civilizational development. I'm really very much focusing on someone like Philip Allen says humanity, you know, developing humanity, allowing for the prosperity of humanity. Again, being quite academic about the whole thing, I'm not going to say what that civilizational development future will look like. The same way I don't want to really say what that utopian world will look like. I'm more or less arguing that we should have this idea in our minds when we're thinking about why should we intervene in a situation where a group of individuals are being persecuted. So my argument would be, well, they could contribute to developing that region. They could be you know, influential in developing how we see the world if we give them the opportunity to develop, the opportunity to contribute to society. So that's really the focus. I'm perhaps less so focused on seeing what that world is going to be and giving the, the, the space for groups, for individuals to contribute, to participate towards developing society for the better. I guess my question is, are you not nevertheless in need of something to ground your, your theory on? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So some sort of sense of religiosity, some unexplainable. And yeah? so why should I care or why should any can I care about civilizational development in the first place? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's the difference between saying, oh, uh, human rights and human dignity, human dignity isn't secular enough to saying, well, civilization development isn't secular enough. There must be some unexplainable. What would you be your reply to that? I, I, it comes back to this idea. I just feel when, when you are trying to justify why, and I suppose Hannah Arendt talks about kind of you could take away someone's rights. Um, and it's going back, going kind of pushing back against that idea of, well, why can't you push against, or, you know, take someone's rights away? Why is it important that um, those rights are protected? I just feel like, the way in which we discuss human rights or these utopian ideal concepts, I just don't think we have enough of a justification as to why. It's, pu- it's purely on the basis of, well, we just have to, because you know, this is how we've kind of developed, this is our new religion, it's un- you know, unexplainable, as you've kind of mentioned. Well, shouldn't we try to explain it? Shouldn't we try to actually have some sort of justification for why we should protect an individual's rights or why we should protect a group from being you know, wiped out because of genocide or wiped out because of, of you know, being at the, um, the the terrible end of, of war crimes. It's, it's trying to give just more of a, of a kind of justifiable explanation in the 21st century as to why every individual, every group is important. They have an, they have an existence that is worthy, that is important to the overall um, 
you know, development of society. So I think I just see some sort of explanation that there that is actually pretty um, justifiable, that has some strength, has some, that has some um, um, legitimacy in, in arguing against those that might say, well, I just want to wipe out this group of individuals. Yeah, of course. I, I just wonder, wouldn't you get more support if you just based it? And of course, here now I'll talk about my research, just yeah. on Article 1 of the Universal Declaration. Right. I mean, they're saying what you're saying. All human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. Mm -hmm. That's it. I mean, is the same sort of fact that you're going for. Right. Yeah. I mean, what or have I misunderstood? Is that precisely what you're saying? Actually, we should be concentrating on this very simple fact mm -hmm. and move on. Yes and no, because I'm also saying that, well, you know, we need to provide these individuals, not just with. Uh, these rights and, and make sure that they're treated equally and, and, and freely. But we should also provide them with, you know, political stability. We should provide them with economic stability. So we should provide them with a great platform to then contribute, to then actually develop and prosper. So it's not just, you know, Western or um, the global north, let's say, that has got the um, opportunity, that has got the wealth to allow each and every individual, if they want to, to contribute, but also the global south. Why shouldn't they be given the opportunity? So it's perhaps pushing a bit further and explaining a little bit further um, why we need to have maybe international law focus on the global south, for example, and that see the development take place so that they can also contribute. So I think it's giving more of a justification. It does, certainly goes in line with what you're arguing in terms of you know, Article 1 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Each and every individual should be treated equally and freely. Um, but I'm asking for a little bit more. I want to see um, society develop. So this the kind of quintessential idea of utopianism, to see change, to see... Um, civilizations to see the world develop and i think it's kind of in line with that idea in line with that kind of philosophical concept that this idea of emancipatory idealism comes into play you make an interesting observation in your book depot that utopianism has its biggest effect after macro destabilization mm -hmm. do you think in order to realize the vision of utopia we need a cataclysmic event you know, does something like climate change offer that opportunity I think so. I think so. It, it is quite a pessimistic view of the world, right? That we be on the edge of, or actually not even on the edge of a, of a catastrophe. We need to be right in the in the thick of a catastrophe to, for us to actually uh, change our ways, for us to develop. But certainly, I think the climate crisis is a great opportunity for us to kind of rethink and rework our, our, our structures, our legal structures, so that we can actually overcome some of these big um, issues that face us. So... Yeah, I definitely see the climate crisis as an opportunity for development to take place in a positive sense. But yeah, we look if we look throughout the history of international law, it does seem to be states being quite reactive. They see that we've, you know, fallen into this massive crisis where it's really affected all these hegemonic powers, not only on a, on a political basis, but perhaps more so importantly on an economic basis. That then states start to think, hold on, let's use these utopian ideals to change society and to develop society, develop these legal structures for the better. And, and what was quite interesting is when we look at the League of Nations, the first 10 years, that was like a really important idea. Yes, we need to continue to maintain international peace and security. But the further and further away we got from that point, the more and more states start to think, hold on, what's my self-interest? And shouldn't I prioritise that over this kind of overall project that we've got here? So, yeah, I think it is quite a pessimistic view, but that seems to be the case when we look at the history of international law, that this is what's taking place. I think I really quickly want to ask then, because, of course, your work on the League of Nations and the United Nations shows this level almost of, like an equal saying, a response. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So let's take an ex 
hypothesis super seriously, right? Now we have a new issue, right? We have environmental and a new issue, definitely not new. We have an issue which people are saying recognize more, right? Environmental degradation. Um, do we need a new institution? Yeah. Now, because you're saying, right, there's problems with the economic powers and control. And of course, we know the United Nations Security Council has a very, let's say, strict ordering within uh, its membership, right, especially with the five permanent members and their powers, which let's say are definitely uh, disproportionate compared to the other members when it comes to making important decisions, as you would say, on important issues, right, as you've been saying throughout the podcast. In your book, you show, hey, as a response, there are institutions which go for new goals, or let's say re-articulations of pursuits of peace, security, or whatnot. Is it time for a new institution? Or do we have the tools in place? I think we have the tools in place. Uh, I think there is enough within the structures uh, for us to effectively deal with uh, the climate crisis or the major crisis that we face. But it comes back to the idea that fundamentally international law is flawed because it's so dependent upon the states. So for these institutions to work, for these structures to work, you really need the states to commit, to actually participate, to contribute to uh, these global issues in a way to see a positive end. So unless you can, you know, emphatically change the way in which these legal structures work, where states are no longer the um, primary subjects and objects of the international legal system, I would then say we've got enough institute, enough there with the United Nations for it to work effectively. If we can, you know, have external acts or, or non-state actors play that influential factor in, in coercing states or in encouraging states to take these issues more seriously, to take these issues to the next level and actually overcome these problems that we face. Uh, I think I'm going to throw it back to an instant I interrupted his flow. <laughs> That's all right. I was, I was probably going to continue on the same path that you were going. I mean, just on that, on that point, Deepak, you mentioned about you know, states are always the problem. And in my mind, I'm just thinking, okay, you just raised that problem. What, what would be a solution then? And in my head, the only thing that I can think about is basically having a super government or some central body that effectively takes away all the rights of the state. And now that's the, the super state that basically can look at a macro view and solve all these problems. Mm-hmm. But then I can see the problem with that in that it will probably decide not to solve certain things because it is limited by its own bureaucratic structure and maybe it's going to focus on the big things like climate change and everything but not on the little kid in the little village in somewhere in South America or Southeast Asia and the problems that they go through that the state would look at because they're more focused on their own state. I'm trying to think what where do you think you you go with this is it enhancing what we've already got and incremental change or do you think we do need like like Carl was probably alluding to something structural, like a resetting of what the UN means and, and how it operates. I think international law needs to be more diverse in its outlook. Okay. I think it's so stuck in that traditional perspective of international law being about state to state that I think it hinders its ability to deal with some of the big global crises that we're facing. So let's see more diversity in the inclusion of various actors within international law, not just kind of on the, on the outskirts of, of the legal system, but you actually be really involved. So multinational organizations or um, regional blocks, uh, NGOs, individuals like communities, even, you know, we, we, we talked about in the academics assemble um, um, mm. special about communities being so important. Um, for actually dealing with issues or big big problems. So I think international needs to be more diverse 
and not rely so much on the state to overcome some of its, so many of its problems, so many of its issues. And I think if international law can work towards, and I think it is working towards, I think slowly and slowly it's actually having that effect. Mm. You know, we've got a plethora of international courts and tribunals that have been set up throughout the last 30 or 40 years. Um, international organisations, NGOs are having so much more of an impact on you know, discussions about international law, dealing with international crises. So we're certainly moving towards that. But I think the, you know, the kind of kind of the old school approach of international law does need to modify. We need to kind of open up and modernize international a little bit more. And I think that will help for that kind of more effective way of dealing with contemporary issues that aren't so state centric. I've got one pessimistic uh, retort to that. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm not sure who's good cop or bad cop on this call. It's no. bad cop, bad cop. That's how we do it. That's how, yeah, that's how it rolls. Deepak's not in power. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was just going to say, like, you, you say the structures may be in place today and that you are seeing improvements, but I, I'm not as close to you, obviously, and you're, you are researching, you're studying this quite regularly. But I just look at it cold and I think there's five nations who have been the same since World War II and... Obviously, these guys set up the structure, and, and again, my pessimistic view is to figure out a way to lock everyone into a, some structure so that they don't cause us any problems anymore. Mm-hmm. And they become reliant actually on us five because of this organisation that we've set up now. Mm-hmm. And if these are the people that are the ones that are now trying to help um, improve the credibility or worth of international law, it's quite a narrow set of people trying to move this forward and. You know, there's a whole half of another world and other countries in the Western sphere that aren't part of that conversation, but then get dictated to and have to follow through because of because of this system like the UN, which they're locked into, right? Yeah. Or the EU, for example. So I kind of, yeah, I think there's a lot of people who are getting left behind, I suppose, from this uh, proposed and, development. And that's precisely why perhaps evolution, well, a drastic change doesn't need to take place, but evolution needs to take place. So we can't mm-hmm. just kind of sit on our laurels and say the United Nations structure is, is fine. Obviously, we need development. So I, I suppose Carl perhaps is, was kind of insinuating or suggesting, let's say, not insinuating is a bit harsh on you, mate. Um, but was suggesting that we should have just a complete uh, overall and we just completely change it. I don't think we should have a complete overall, but I think evolution needs to take place. And Anique, the point you make about the fact that you've got five states, um, two of which don't even have as much, you know, perhaps uh, geopolitical importance as they used to have when they were empirical powers, um, have so much influence on what global politics is like is really problematic. And, and I think, you know, someone like Kofi Annan, he did suggest that the Security Council needs drastic reform. Um, even Ban Ki-moon actually suggested that um, a drastic reform of the Security Council is required. So I would echo those opinions and say, Evolution is important. We need to see international law become more diverse, not only in just in terms of its actors, but in terms of how it's represented amongst the states and who are the states that are representing or having the biggest influence on the legal system. So I would say evolution is important. Perhaps drastic change is not not necessarily needed. We've got enough there to deal with the big crisis that we've got right now. Let's try to move with some sort of evolution, some sort of modernization in the legal system. It's interesting. I think... um... So first of all, just just to make you feel bad, Deepak, we're not bad cop, bad cop in any sense. <laughs> I think I think like so the project that you advance in your book um, is obviously one that is very easy to get on board with, 
right? You're essentially saying we need to move to a world where people do uh, strive for peace, security, and says, and of course, human rights, where the state step back a little bit in terms of hold of power and there's more global sharing of power, right? As far as I understood by the end of your book. Interestingly enough, I would say I'd go further than insinuating there would have to be a drastic change, right? So you won't be harsh at all. In my opinion, if you want a more egalitarian global order, let's use global in the loose sense, of course, you'd have to have a complete re- imagination of how the world works, right? And then this goes back to how, and equals including economic concerns, right? Of course, people are in different positions of power and they are, let's say, reinforced daily, yeah? Because they are self-perpetuating to a certain extent. Uh, they help reinforce each other. And of course, this reinforces history. And law plays a part in this, of course, yeah? Is it going to happen? I'm on your side, of course. <laughs> of course, of course, um, we have to be pessimistic in that sense, right? People don't often like like letting go of power. But then I think we should maybe uh, put on our good cop hats and try and think with you now a little bit on this idea of utopia, which you raise, and the uh, value of utopia and thinking about utopia, but also thinking philosophically about this, right? Because we've talked a lot about the law, we've talked about institutions. One uh, idea that maybe some listeners already have come about, at least those who uh, uh, know about international law and uh, let's say resolutions that have been advanced uh, by philosophers of how the global order could be uh, constructed would be Kant's idea of perpetual peace, right? And this kind of world federation. This of course is quite inspiring, a project. Would you align your ideas to a project like this or how else would you say we should, for example, as let's say optimist, approach this idea of utopia and the value of utopian rethinking our world? So this is a tricky question. So I think in theory, I would be for this concept of perpetual peace. Um, my only reservation, and this is perhaps why I'm very tentative to actually kind of give a utopian vision is that so far, when we talk about perpetual peace, we talk about utopian ideals, it is very Western orientated, right? It's not truly engaging with different perspectives and different approaches. So, and that's why I was quite tentative when it, when I think Anik suggested that we should have a supranational order. It again goes up along the lines that because international is such a, a Western orientated practice, can we actually have a, an order that's going to really reflect all of the views and wishes of, um, of the states in the, in the globe. I, I'm not sure we're at that point yet. And the same thing with, with Kant's perpetual peace, you know, working towards such a project, working towards such an idea. I'm all for it on a theoretical basis, but perhaps on a more substantive basis, I wanna see perhaps these theories be more engaged with you know, non-Western theories so we can find this kind of viewpoint or this ideal of what perpetual peace would truly look like for the globe as a whole. So yeah, in theory, yes, but substantively I've got some reservations there in regards to kind of achieving perpetual peace or, or the vision of perpetual peace that we have right now, which is quite, you know, a, a Kantian perspective that is very Western liberal. I think, so then I, I guess it's a good point for us to learn, for Anik and I to learn from you. Where can we go to if we want to begin engaging with non-Western perspectives? So where can we begin enlightening ourselves about some possible reading so we can come along with you on this journey and thinking about a more inclusive idea of developing this new world so i've got to say i haven't got to that point yet but i think that's where i want to go with this with utopianism with this idea of utopianism exploring this concept of utopianism what i'm often finding is that we're talking about it from that western perspective and i think that's the next stage for this research project actually is to go 
in that avenue and to look at it from those various different philosophies, those different paradigms, those different perspectives. So we can actually have this truly uh, un true understanding of what a utopian vision really looks like. So I unfortunately can't give you those suggestions, but talk to me in a, in a few months time. I might be there. There we go. There's the, there's the promotion for the next book. Exactly. <laughs> well, Deepak, thanks for joining us on this podcast. Thanks for taking it up to be interviewed by Carl and I. Had a great time. Uh, it, it's been a huge pleasure. I'd like to say both of you guys did a fantastic job. Uh, some mm -hmm. of the questions were brilliant. So I really enjoyed the last hour or so of having a chat with you guys about my book. Absolutely. I enjoyed it as well. Uh, and Deepak, thank you for having me on. And I definitely would encourage everyone to go out and pick up uh, Deepak's book, States Undermining International Law. Yeah. Um, a fantastic move from philosophy to international law in a really engaging way. Uh, a great read. Okay, that was a strange episode. Firstly, where were you at the beginning? I don't know. And who the hell was that guy? I don't know. I picked him off off the street. <laughs> All right, let's just ignore that even happened. Exactly. And just continue on like it was let's normal. Just move on. Just a weird person just came in, interviewed me, kidnapped me, maybe? Potentially. It seems <laughs> like that. Anyway, all right, we'll just move on. We'll just move on. So, yeah, that was uh, the end of the season, right? And I think a nice way to end the season. I got interviewed. It was yeah. a pleasant experience. Um, we don't need to talk about it anymore. We've done enough of a conversation. Let's talk about the season, like how it went out. Uh, our start, you know, starting with Andre, ending with yeah. me. Yeah. Having Academics Assemble happen in the middle of it. I was still feeling the buzz from Academics Assemble. So, that was really cool. Um, it's been an awesome year. I've really, really enjoyed our first season doing a podcast. Um, the best part, I've got to say, has been hanging out with you and doing this. Thank you. That is not in my top five. But... <laughs> <laughs> and talking about hanging out, it's the first time we're doing this together. It is. Yeah. So we are actually, it's actually already um, interesting, isn't it? We're in yeah. Canterbury together. Yeah, yeah. Where, it started. Where, we, where it all started. Yeah. yeah. Spending a few days here. And uh, we we're doing this recording live. We're, we're having a romantic break. Romantic break with yeah. a with a, with a third person, or one of our friends, yeah, who's, who's, who's lucky to see the behind the scenes of the yeah. House of Wisdom podcast. Exactly, exactly. He's so. not literally in this room right now, but he's in the house. Yeah, where where it's happening. Yeah, so yeah. So it's, it's our vacation. It's our House of Wisdom vacation place. Yeah, I think of it like that. But yeah, so it's kind of cool, like. We're doing the last segment of the season together, which is really cool. Do you want to say hello? And we've got our behind-the-scenes guest. He just popped in. Hi. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Uh, so, yeah, loads of... I'm not going to say any lows. It was hard work. I think, you know, running, running a podcast was tough work, but I think we enjoyed it. We got to explore a lot of cool topics, uh, meet amazing people, and I think next season... We want to do the same. We want to expand. We want to change it up. We're going to have a little break. Because I think, you know, having a little bit of break, reflecting on what we've done, we're really good. So when we come back in September, October, we're raring to go with some new ideas, some new energy. Um, yeah. So, I mean, how's your, what's your feeling on the... Well, it's been a great, great season, hasn't it? When, just again, remember when we started, yeah. we were struggling to find people at the beginning during the summer before mm -hmm. we launched. Yeah. And then by Christmas, we had guests all the way up to June. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and the reception from guests as well as the listeners has just been fantastic. Right? Yeah. So, thanks to everyone who's been tuning in. Yeah, and um, a big thank you to the guests too, right? 
hundred percent, yeah. Mm. They, they've been amazing. Every guest who's come on has been um, has really taken this really seriously. Yeah. And they've been really complimentary of the whole process as well, yeah. which I think is just yeah. You know, for us figuring all of this out by ourselves and then hearing mm -hmm. these guests who have got really esteemed careers, yeah. right, telling us how how good yeah. it was. Yeah. Makes me feel good. Yeah. I know. It def definitely does. I definitely feel like we did something really good there. And and the academic December website was really nice yeah. seeing. I think it was like just over 20 people or so, right, mm. tuning in, mm. wanting to hear us or wanting to hear this yeah. show. Yeah. Um, that's that's nice to see as well. Yeah. Right? And, so, and it's the beginning of something, right? I think that's yeah. that's something we're going to expand upon, develop and see where it takes us. So I don't know, maybe years down the line, I won't remember, oh, I remember the first academic assemble, it was like online, just a few people, and then who knows, years down the line. Exactly, five years' time, we may be... Uh, Headlining a conference, yeah, like never know. Let's see. Let's yeah, see where it takes yeah. us. So, so we're gonna be heading back to the basement, even though we're kind of are in a basement right now, yeah. in some ways. And we're gonna just be planning, thinking about what we can do to improve the podcast. So, yeah, we're having a bit of a break, but you know, wait, watch out. We're gonna be starting up again in September and October. Mm -hmm. um, we want to push the envelope. We definitely want to do something more exciting, take it in a new direction. Who knows what we're gonna come up with? We're looking forward to what we can come up with over the over the summer holidays. And um, yeah, anything else you want to add? Any, any kind of mentions? I think, I think we're going to use this summer to recharge, yeah. re-energize, mm -hmm. and return with something yeah. new, fresh, and yeah. just build upon the, yeah. the the cool stuff we do in season one, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Definitely, yeah. definitely, definitely. So yeah, so if, for those guys that haven't listened to some of the episodes, we are on Anchor, we are on Spotify, Apple, all those mm -hmm. places. Uh, like and follow us on Twitter, uh, House of Wisdom Podcast. Um, I can't remember the thing right now. <laughs> and we're also on Twitter. Uh, so yeah, just follow us. And Anik, I think you've probably got one last thing you want to say, right? Saying goodbye doesn't mean anything. It's not over. It's the time we spent together that matters. See you in season two.